Hey, good morning. If we haven't gotten the chance to meet before, my name is Joe, and I'm the, the youth pastor here at Kesed, and I'm really grateful uh, to be here with, your, this, with you this morning. I just want to say one thing. Uh, if we haven't gotten the chance to meet before, I would love that opportunity. If you could even just come and say hi to me, uh, I'd love to shake your hand and just get to know you, because I'm really grateful you're here. Thanks for being here and being a part of what God's doing here. Uh, Last week, Danny began the series called What Can I Bring? And it's a series on generosity. And the moment we say the word generosity, everyone thinks money. And that wasn't our goal necessarily. Our goal is really to say that when you're invited to any of these holiday parties, meals, dinners, oftentimes the first thing that's asked is what can I bring? which for us became this idea that we kind of have this innate drive towards generosity, towards saying, what can I bring to the table? What can I bring? What, what gifts, what resources, what time can I bring to these relationships and to these communities that we're a part of? And so Danny last week talked about how generosity is actually fundamental to who God is, that it's a part of his being, it's a part of his character. And you, you can see that from the beginning of time that God couldn't help but create the universe because it's a part of him. He has to share and overflow who he is, and thus we get creation. This week, I actually wanna talk about why generosity is pretty rare, why we all want it, why, why we, we long to be generous, why when we see it, we're like, that's remarkable, and yet why it's rare. And I want to talk about that today. But before I do, I first want to highlight the fact that uh, I want to highlight the fact that uh, I want to tell you a quick story. So how, just in your head really quick, how many of you have met uh, a celebrity or a famous person, a famous musician, athlete? Uh, can anyone just show a hands who here's met someone famous? Awesome. Uh, I want to tell you one of the stories. I've met a handful of famous people and actually I've never had a bad experience with any of the celebrities I've met. They've all been pretty, pretty awesome. I've actually been the problem in most of the encounters. <laughs> and to explain what I mean, um, I got the chance when I was a junior or senior in high school um, to kind of meet Lofa Tatupu. Does that name ring a bell to anyone in here? Lofa Tatupu? Yeah, okay. <laughs> uh, go Hawks. Uh, but uh, Lofa Tatupu was the middle linebacker for the Seattle Seahawks, uh, actually the, their first ever trip to the Super Bowl in 2005. And I happened to be at the SeaTac airport uh, getting ready to go visit some family in California, and while I was waiting at my terminal, I see this six-foot, 250-pound Samoan guy walk out of the gate, and I'm literally like, I, I, I know his face. I was like, that's Lofa Tatupu. But the thing about you need to know about me is I'm also, as a 16-year-old, incredibly insecure. And so I get up, and I'm like, I'm like a giddy schoolgirl a little bit, like just like so excited. And I'm, going, I'm getting ready to go and say hi to him. And as I walk up to him, I get nervous and then turn around. And I'm like, no, I need to get a picture. I need to get his autograph. People need to know that like, this happened. So then I follow him again, and then I get nervous, and I turn around. And as he's walking... Um, and he's got these big headphones on and a backwards hat. I'm just like, I'm probably 10 feet behind him, just like walking, just like staring at him. Like, like my face probably looked like I was going to murder him, but I was not going to. I couldn't if I wanted to. And 
I'm like, finally, I resolve in my head that I'm going to meet that man. I'm going to ask for his autograph. I'm going to ask to take a picture. And he's walking, and so I start to speed walk a little bit, and then he veers right, and he goes into the men's restroom. <laughs> and that was not going to stop me. <laughs> so I follow him into the restroom, and he goes to the urinal, and I walk up, because I'm, I'm literally going to tap him on the shoulder. <laughs> And I go to tap him on the shoulder, and then the wise part of me prevails, and I'm like, what am I doing? <laughs> I am that person that you read about online that celebrities hate. I followed a grown man to the restroom, and I'm about to sneak up on him. So then I turn around and walk out. And I'm like sitting there, and at this point, I'm like, he literally probably saw me in his peripheral, and he's like, that guy is the creepiest guy I've ever met. No way am I going to give him an autograph. And so I start, I just go sit at the bench, and I'm like just sulking, and I'm like, he's probably mean anyways. And he walks out of the bathroom, and a bunch of kids run up to him, along with their dads and moms, and he signs their autographs and takes pictures with them. And I realize he's actually a genuinely good guy. And I never went up to him because I was pretty confident at that point that he was like, you followed me into the bathroom, didn't you? <laughs> so I never got my picture. I never got my autograph with Lofa Tatupu. Um, and by the way, hopefully the lesson of that story is don't follow your favorite people and celebrities into the bathroom. <laughs> Amen? <laughs> um, but, and I... I, I will say, uh, I, like I said, I've had only positive experiences with like, kind of the more famous or celebrity-like people. But I, uh, had, I did talk to someone this week who met an Academy Award-winning actor and actually waited on him at a local restaurant here in Vancouver. And what she described to me was appalling. And I'm not going to tell you who the actor is, mostly because I like the suspense, but also... Um, <laughs> Uh, but this is, this, I'm so confident everyone in here has seen at least one of his movies. And she said he was rude, that when fans or people wanted to come up and ask for his autograph or, or take a picture with him, he was like, no. And that's like all he would say, no, no rationale, no reason, even kids. She said that he uh, literally was the worst tipper she had ever seen, paying a couple cents on an outrageously large bill. And the thing is, is I'm sure for this gal, who's one of the leaders in our youth ministry, I'm sure for her, she would tell you that she had seen that a lot before, but there was something more salty about this Academy Award winning, several times over multimillionaire, who hoarded his time, hoarded his relationships, hoarded his resources, and there's something about that that we just don't like. Some, something about that that even just kind of feels evil, right? Now, I'm not, I'm not going to attribute that, that. Every one of us has a bad day. Every one of us has those moments where we're short with people. I'm not saying that, that that's who this guy is. But I think that moment to me sticks out as she was saying that because it hit me, that is the opposite of generosity. And I wonder why a guy who has more wealth in terms of his resources, a guy who has a lot of time, who has everything everyone could want, 
and yet he's short with people and he's cheap at that moment. Why? And it hit me that the opposite of generosity is not like it's not actually how much stuff we have or how much time we have or how much talent we have. The opposite of generosity is this belief in scarcity. And it's the scarcity mindset, the scarcity belief that I think is pervasive to every one of us. This idea that if I give away my time, I give away my resources, I give away my talent, I give away my community, I give away my relationships, that if I hold them with open hands, they'll be gone and I won't get them back. And that belief causes us then to hold everything we have and everything we are with closed hands. And then even worse than that, what starts to happen is as we accumulate, that fear continues to drive us, so then we hoard more and more and more and more. And so we're gonna talk about scarcity today. We're gonna talk about this belief. And actually, I'm not even gonna call it a belief, I'm gonna call it a fear. And we're gonna talk about that more. But uh, our friends at the Bible Project actually talked about this and they did it in a far better way than even I can. So we're gonna take a look at what they said here for a couple minutes and, uh, and then we'll talk more. Imagine your friend invites you to a party. You arrive and there's lots of people, decorations, food and drink. There's enough for everyone. When you're hosted by someone that generous, you don't have to worry about your needs. You can just enjoy yourself and focus on the people around you. Yeah, that's what a good host wants for her guests. And this is the picture of the world that we find in the Bible. Creation is an expression of God's generous love. He's the host and humans are his guests in a world of opportunity and abundance. And we're called to keep the party going, to spread his goodness. This is a beautiful picture, but it's not the way people experience the world. Rather, we find a world of scarcity and struggle, not abundance. And Jesus grew up in that kind of world. Under military occupation, people losing their land or families to debt and poverty. And yet, he would say things like this. Look at the birds. They don't store up food for themselves, yet they have enough. Or consider the wildflowers. They're beautiful and abundant, and they don't stress about their existence. And you all should live that way too. But surely Jesus knew that things don't always work out. I mean, sometimes there really isn't enough. And Jesus did experience poverty firsthand, but he viewed the world through the story of the Hebrew scriptures, which claimed that our scarcity problem isn't caused by a lack of resources. Rather, the problem is our mindset that God can't be trusted. Maybe God's holding out on me. Maybe there isn't enough and maybe I need to take matters into my own hands. And once we're deceived into that mindset of scarcity, we can justify the impulse to take care of me and mine before anyone else. And that leads to envy, anger, violence, and a world where it seems like there's not enough. The party's over, it's turned into a battleground. But God wants humans to experience his generosity. And so he chooses one people, the family of Abraham, and he promises to give them the abundance that he wants for everybody else. God will provide what they need. All they have to do is trust his generosity. And through them, the whole world will see how generous the host really is. But that's not what happens. Abraham's descendants, the Israelites, enter a land of abundance and they promptly forget the host who gave it to them. They act like it's all theirs and like there's not enough. 
and it leads to war and Israel's self-destruction. If I were the host of this party, I think I'd just give up. But God doesn't give up. What he does is surprising. He gives another gift. Another gift? Yeah, but this gift is different. What God gives is himself. All right, and Jesus, the host himself, comes to join in on the spoiled party. And notice, Jesus lives with the conviction that there is enough and that our generous host can be trusted. His mindset of abundance allowed him to live sacrificially and generously even towards his enemies. And Jesus called his followers to trust in God's abundance like him. And that's why he said things like, sell your possessions and give to the poor, or don't worry about your life. He's inviting us to live by a different story, one that is built on trust in God's goodness and love. But living generously doesn't mean life is gonna go well. I mean, look at Jesus. He was betrayed by his friends and he suffered. And this was no surprise to Jesus. He knew that people would take advantage of his generosity. In fact, that was his plan. Really? Yeah, think about it. Jesus knows that we're all hopelessly deceived by this lie that there's not enough. Yeah, that lie needs to be defeated. And so that's what Jesus was doing when he gave us the gift of his life. Jesus' death was the ultimate expression of God's generous love. Yeah, God's love can turn death into life. and scarcity back into abundance. Or as the Apostle Paul put it, you know the gift of our Lord Jesus the Messiah, that even though he was rich, for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. And Jesus called his followers to live like the real party has begun. Yes, he called it the kingdom of God. And our invitation to this party is yet another gift, the personal presence of God's own spirit that can teach us how to trust the generosity of the host, just like Jesus did. Yeah, and when you believe there's enough, you start seeing opportunities for generosity everywhere with our time and money, our attention. Yes, one of the most important ways that we can experience the abundance of God's new creation is sharing with others because of our trust that God is the generous host. I just love their stuff. Way better than I could ever say that. <laughs> and by the way, I just, I wanna, I wanna create a space here that recognizes, I know for a lot of us, uh, when we hear, oh, God will abundantly provide, or God wants to grant us abundance, our life has said, has always seemed to indicate otherwise. I've been there. I've been there when there's way more month at the end of the check. I've been there when I've wondered where's my next meal gonna come from, I've been there. But I think before we even talk about how much we have or what we can give or how we can be generous, we first need to just realize that the battle here is within our own heart to say that if this is a fulcrum of generosity and scarcity, then the thing that balances is this idea of trust. It's this idea, and not just in trusting that God will provide, but rather trusting is God who he says he is. Is God who he says he is. And so as we talk about this, we're gonna talk a little bit going back to the beginning like Danny did yesterday in Genesis chapter one, but we're actually gonna fast forward a little bit in the story to Genesis chapter three. God's created the world and has created humanity to help spread his generosity throughout creation. 
and to bring into full culmination this idea of God's generosity. But in Genesis 3, we see for the first time uh, the threatening of this idea that God is generous. And so going to Genesis chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, it says, Now the serpent, uh, this becomes a metaphoric representation for the devil and ultimately opposition to God, was more crafty or conniving than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And notice this, by the way, he said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst or middle of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. So first thing, notice here that the serpent, his first thing he does is not tell a lie but get Eve here to question God. Did God really say? Is God authentic? Is God honest? Is God really who he says he is? And I think for you and for me, the first thing we need to realize is is that we don't always immediately believe a lie. What we start to do is question the truth. And I think that's where scarcity comes from, right? This belief is not so much that God's not gonna provide, but will God actually provide? It's, it's the questioning of the truth, not so much the believing in the lie versus the truth. And so notice what those serpent says. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and for you will be like God, knowing good and evil. One thing I wanna, I wanna just pause here, because the serpent says, if you eat of this, you'll become like God. And if I could go back in time, and by the way, I'm not better than Adam and Eve, I would have done the same exact thing. But if I could go back in time, there's this part of me that just like would scream out into the void, you're already like God. You're the only thing in all of the cosmos, in all of the universe that's created in his image. In the ancient world, when they would construct a temple for their God, they would put an idol or a statue as a visual representation of that God. And when Genesis says God creates the universe, meaning his temple, and humanity is his image, it's that same word, meaning that you and I are the visual representation of the invisible God and we are it. There is nothing else in all of creation that bears that image but you and me. We are it, we're already like him. And God granted us all of his creation. And yet what the enemy convinces Eve of right here in this moment is not that God, or that God doesn't want them to do bad things. The thing that the serpent gets Eve to believe here, and, and by extension, you and me to believe, is that God is withholding something from us. God is withholding something from us. They're, they're, he's, he's holding and hiding and teasing us from good things that we could have. And so then it puts Eve and by extension us in this posture that we have to take it. And so notice what happens. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, 
By the way, that word there, uh, the Bible talks about wisdom a lot, particularly in the, the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible. In, in Hebrew, there's a very common word for wise, and it's not this word. And this word could even be translated as skillful or successful. So when the woman saw that the fruit of this tree was good for making one successful, by the way, that might resonate more with people in the West, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And if I were to articulate this for you and me, it's that God doesn't want us to be successful, so I have to go get it on my own. But this belief in, in scarcity, and more than that, this fear that God is withholding something from us, that, that God doesn't want us to have good things, then we get into this pattern of taking. But the thing is, is that doesn't stop because that fear doesn't go away. And we want more and more and more and more. And then, and then what we start to do is we create the cycle of scarcity where we take and we, we hold things with closed hands and that immediately puts us in a combative stance with the people around us and then we take more, whether it's our time, our resources, our relationships, our gifts, our money, whatever it is, this fear of scarcity. And ultimately it's rooted in God, are you who you say you are? This cancerous belief permeates our society, permeates me. And by the way, if you track the story, it continues, right? So this cycle starts with Adam and Eve, but then you go down to their children and you have Cain and Abel, right? You have Cain who's like, who sees God favoring Abel's offering and he doesn't think that God could possibly have enough favor for both of them. And so God is withholding that favor. I need to eliminate the threat. And so he kills his brother in the first act of violence in human history. And then he's like, now I can receive all of the favor. And then by the way, we think it would stop there, but it goes down to his son Lamech, who's now like, I'm, I'm murdering everyone around me in my community. Because I'm gonna maintain my, my top spot through violence. And you continue and you continue and you continue to the point where humanity chooses to, to commune together and to build a tower into heaven because God is withholding even glory from us. The whole story is this belief that God is withholding from us. And so we have to take. But then that becomes the catalyst for all of the ills in our society. So the question is, if this is the battle, God, are you who you say you are? Are you good? Do you want good things for me? Or God, are you not who you say you are? If that's the battle, then what happens when someone makes the decision to say, I'm gonna trust that God is who he says he is and they break that cycle of scarcity? What happens? Um, Walter Brueggemann is actually an Old Testament theologian. He's one of my favorite. Um, but he has this quote, and he talks about how Genesis 1 affirms generosity and denies scarcity, right? That, that is who God is because he begins to create. And that blessing is the force of well-being that's active in the world. And that faith is our ability to be aware that creation is the gift that keeps on giving, he goes on to say that Pharaoh introduces for the first time on a societal level this idea of scarcity. 
the most powerful empire in the world, says we don't have enough, so I'm gonna enslave them so I can have more. And I'm gonna eliminate any threat to my abundance. And so he says, let's get everything. And the end of his quote is beautiful. He says, the text shows that the power of the future is not in the hands of those who believe in scarcity and monopolize the world's resources. It is in the hands of those who trust God's abundance. So what happens for those of us who trust God's abundance and break the cycle? What can happen? I wanna show you one of my favorite stories of a guy who breaks the cycle, of a guy who does something radically different, and that man is David. Now, David, I will say, for those of us that know the story, he's the, uh, the second king in the entire history of the nation of Israel, and his life was full of trauma. And I, I wanna tell you, I, I grew up in, in foster care, and one of my first ever experiences in my first ever foster home was that for people who have experienced trauma, we went into the pantry and we snagged food and we hid it under our beds. And if you've ever interacted with anyone who's gone through trauma, that's, I guess that's really common. But for people, and there's people in this room who have gone through even more intense trauma than me. But what I will say is I know with trauma, it is really hard to break that cycle of scarcity. And I want you, I hope you hear not a, a tone of judgment in my voice, but one of compassion. Because your experiences affirm that belief that God's not gonna provide, that God is not who he says he is. And I wanna tell you that God can heal that and use that. But David went through that trauma, and that's why I, I bring that up. David spent most of his upbringing being overlooked by his family of origin and he spent most of his early adult years running from a man who sought violence and death on him. That's his story. And the thing about trauma is, is when, again, it puts us in this posture where we need to steal and hide and hold these things with closed hands and write, and it makes sense. And if there's a guy who, who had every right to do that, it would be David. But he enters into power. He becomes king. And notice what he does. So in 2 Samuel chapter 9, if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. In verse 1 it says, And David said, Is there anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Saul was the, the first king. Now two things. One, Saul was the guy who was seeking him out to kill him. Saul was the guy that was, was breathing all of this traumatic, violent experiences on him. Saul was the reason he had to run for most of his life. It was Saul. And notice here, and the other thing, by the way, is in the ancient world when there was a, a change in power, when there was one king's family, the king was assassinated and another king came in, it was very common in the ancient world for that new king to wipe out anyone in the old king's family and anyone who was loyal to that king. Because if you were starting in power, you're like, I need ultimate and complete loyalty. And so no one in the ancient world would have blamed David if he's like, let's wipe out every single one of Saul's family members. No one would have blamed him. Because, by the way, Saul gave him every reason to fear them. But he doesn't. 
Notice here, let me, let me, is there anyone left in that house or in that family of Saul that I may show him kindness? And by the way, the word kindness there is too, it's too vanilla of a word. That's the word where we get our church name, Kesed, right? It's Kesed. Let me show him this covenantal love. Let me show him this kindness, even though he doesn't deserve it. And for Jonathan's sake, who is Saul's son, who became a good friend to David. Is there anyone left? And notice here in verse two, now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David. And the king said to him, are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. By the way, he needed to say that because again, he's probably thinking David's about to kill me. And the king said, is there, still, is there not still someone in the house of Saul that I may show the kindness or kessed of God to him? Ziba said to the king, there is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. So a couple things here. One, David doesn't know because he comes into power and he doesn't know if anyone's left. And this might have been a ploy to wipe out anyone who threatened him. So Ziba's like, Ziba's hidden Saul's grandson. But even more than that, Saul's grandson was crippled in his feet which in the ancient world, now he went from being a part of a royal family to being the lowest person on the societal totem pole. He would be poor, he would be destitute, he would have nothing. And the other thing I wanna tell you is why is Jonathan's son crippled? He has his own trauma. You see, when, when Saul and Jonathan were killed in battle, knowing that someone new would come to power, Mephibosheth, who we're gonna learn about, his nurse carries him away to run because again, if there's a new king coming into power, they're gonna wipe out everybody. So the nurse, is, the nurse takes him and runs in haste, fearing for his safety. And as she is running in fear, she drops him. And so for Mephibosheth, I'm sure David is a large portion of his trauma. And David and Mephibosheth are the two characters who could live their whole lives with this belief in scarcity that God is not who he says he is. And I wanna show you the power of breaking the cycle. Notice here, the king said to him, where is he? And Ziba said to him, the king, to the king, he is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth, could you, I just want you to feel the tension here. Could you imagine this guy that has no power in this moment, who knows the ancient world, who knows as he sits here, this guy is probably gonna kill me. Could you imagine the fear in his eyes? Could you imagine, just picture the well of tears beginning to build up as he says, of course this is gonna happen to me. Of course. And as he sits there and has no power to move or to run, and as his lips begin to quiver, he says, 
And David said, Mephibosheth, and he answered, behold, I am your servant, probably trying to fight back the tears. And again, David would have been justified from an earthly standpoint. My whole life, people have been threatening me. And he breaks the cycle here. Notice this in verse 7. And David said to him, do not fear. By the way, one of the most common responses God gives to humanity. Do not fear. David is beginning at this moment to look like the generous God. And he says, for I will show you kindness or kessed for the sake of your father, Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. It would have been enough just to restore the land of his father. Here, you go have that land again. I could take it. I have every right to, but here, have your land back. And it's another thing to say, I'm going to create a spot at my table forever. Forever. And in verse 8, and he, Mephibosheth, paid homage and said, what is your servant that you shouldn't regard, have regard for a dead dog like me? One of the last homes I was ever in, um, I, it was Christmas time, and uh, oftentimes one of the beliefs I had growing up was, well, I'm a guest, I'm always an eternal guest in someone's home. That's how I spent most of my life. And what was interesting is Christmas morning, I always kinda, I, I didn't, the way I grew up, you didn't wake up excited for Christmas, you let the family upstairs celebrate their Christmas, and then you come back down, and, um, and then you just live your day. And in one of the last homes I was ever in, the family came down, and I was trying to sleep in. I was awake, I heard everything, but they, they run down and they bang on my door. They're like, get up, get up, get up. And I'm like, what's going on? And they're like, you're part of the family. Come celebrate Christmas with us. And I come upstairs and each of their kids, their biological kids, had a, a pile of gifts. And I look over and they had a pile of gifts for me. But more than that, it wasn't the gifts, it was the fact that they had a table setting. And, they were, and at their table, they were like, Joe, that's your spot. Forever. And by the way, this family meant it. Because that spot's still going to be available for me in two weeks at Thanksgiving. And I know there are people in this room right now who are like Mephibosheth looking up at God. And you don't look up at him with a lot of peace. You look at him with a lot of fear. And you feel like Mephibosheth, and you're like, why would you notice a dead dog like me? You couldn't possibly want good things for me. And so my whole life has been spent running, hoarding, holding, stealing, because you couldn't possibly want a spot at the table with me. And if you leave with anything I say today, my prayer is that you leave with this. You have the God of the universe who wants to get down on your level and cup the outside of your face 
and who was telling you, I've been chasing you your whole existence. Just so that you would always know, no matter what you've done, where you've been, how you've, you've possibly hurt me, you will always, always have a, a spot at my table. And you will always get your fill with me. And so I want us to leave knowing that God has that word always for you. Always. And it's that belief that, God, you are who you say you are. And that means that you'll do what you say you'll do, which is you will provide for me. You will show up. You will be there. And when we're there, now we can hold our stuff, our time, our resources, our gifts, our relationships with open hands. Because we know that whatever we give, God has plenty more to give back. It's who he is. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to invite the band up and I'm going to close our time in prayer. And as we do that, uh, again, Chandra had talked about how sometimes the Holy Spirit totally changes our services. This is absolutely true, by the way. Because on Thursday, this song wasn't a part of the set. But as the Lord was speaking to me in this message, what was so interesting was I think, again, my belief wasn't that, God, you're not going to provide stuff. It's that, God, are you really who you say you are? And I heard this song on shuffle as I was listening to music and just praying. And I realized God was saying, I don't want to just give you a part of myself. I want to give you all of me. Every part. Always. And so I'm going to pray. And I just hope that these words wash over you with that understanding that God is inviting you to the table and has more than enough because he's more than enough, always. Let's pray. Father, I wanna say thank you. You are enough. But more than that, God, I, I wanna apologize that more often than not in my life, I've believed the lie that you are not who you say you are. And so, God, I just want to pray today that all of my friends in here will know that you are getting down on their level. Maybe they're looking at you through the lens of their fear, through their angst, through their hurt. And I pray, God, that instead they would hear you want to give all of yourself to them. Always. And so, Lord, as your spirit works in us, may we then begin to be people who can rest at your table, filled to the brim, ready to overflow. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm reserved, unrestrained. Your love is wild. Your love is wild for me, it isn't shy, it's unashamed. Your love is proud to be seen with me, yes it is, to be seen with me, oh, 
Would you stand with me? Let's close in prayer. Something cool happens when we believe the lines of that song. That God doesn't give us his goodness in pieces. He doesn't give give us himself in pieces. The profound thing that happens as we begin to look like him when we believe it. Let's pray. God, I want to say thank you. You don't give one ounce of yourself in pieces. And there's more than enough for each person in this room for you to to spill out love and grace and presence over them and for me. And so, Lord, I pray more than anything before we start, start talking about how to be generous, that you would help cure the fear of scarcity and inspire us with the belief that you are abundant because it's who you are. And so we surrender this to you and we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. We'll see you next week. Danny continues the series, What Can I Bring?